Well, amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We're going to look at these as a unit this morning, chapter 10 and 11, but we're actually only going to read at the opening uh, today from chapter 11. Genesis 10 and 11. And we'll be reading from Genesis 11, verse 1 to 9. The word of God says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and buttermen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God. Well, I was hoping that I'd be able to tell you that it was finally over. <laughs> I'd initially written an introduction to my sermon about my joy at the fact that the election season was over, and it's still not quite over, is it? In true 2020 fashion, things continue even as we speak on in a whole nother set of issues that'll continue. And sadly, that means I think that much of the attitude that we've seen from the prevailing political season will likely continue on through the end of the year. We'll continue, sadly, to see divisions, and we'll also see folks unify around candidates and causes and all sorts of things, and that will only cause folks to divide more from those on the other side of whatever the issue is, and the... I think the results, whenever we finally officially have everything, will continue to produce both unity and division. But rather than those, I think ultimately our position should be one of humility. Regardless of what happens, I think we should allow God to humble us through this. Jesus once told a parable, and he had a a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and said, I thank God that I'm not like all those other people. But that, I'm, but, that, but that I have everything right and have figured it all out and walked in, in my own uh, righteousness and in my own way. And Jesus says, don't be like him, but rather be like the sinner who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and has nothing in himself to lean on. I think, rather than thanking God, we're not like those other people, whoever that is that you might insert there. We should simply plead with God to have mercy with us in the days and weeks ahead. And these themes of unity 
division, and humility all find their source and examples in the passage before us this morning. Genesis 10 picks right up where Genesis 9 left off with us. We've been working through this book, and we see the spotlight put on Noah's sons. Look with me, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Look what we see. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So here we pick up Noah and his sons after the flood's done, after everything that happened in the vineyard's done. And we see here that these are the generations of the sons of Noah. I've mentioned before that that word generations, that word genealogy, we see is the Hebrew word teledot. You'll see this in your notes. And it offered throughout Genesis 1 to 11, sort of various markers that you'll see. It sort of marks transitions throughout the book. It's used back in chapter 2, verse 4, to reference the account or the generation of the heavens and the earth. It was used in chapter 5 for the genealogy of Adam. It was used, chapter 6, verse 9, for the generations of Noah. We see it twice in chapter 10, both in verse 1 and verse 32, and you see it twice in chapter 11, in reference to the lines of Shem and a guy named Terah, and on and on it goes. This is meant to mark that a major transition is occurring. It brought us from creation to Adam, from Adam to Noah, and now in our passage, it moves from Noah to a guy you may have heard of named Abraham, which is what's coming after chapter 11 is finished. And here we see that all of humanity originating from th- one of three sons, that nations of the world are put out on this table that we see in chapter 10, and we find their source there. Chapter 10 is really broken up into three sections, each one following the line of one of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And it can be easy to get really lost in this list. There's been folks who have spent hours and hours and hours doing research of, okay, if if Noah and his family started here, and this family went this way, and had these kids, and went this way, and this way, and this way, and and they've broken all this down, and sort of gone, well, these people originate from here, and here, and here, and you could spend hours doing that if you'd like this week, but I don't think that, that this message is the place for that. I do think there's a few important details we can see, though. And I think below all of it, the point of all of it that you see in your notes this morning, Moses wants us to see that humanity is united by a common ancestry. That humanity is united in a common ancestry. You see, if you just sort of gaze over Genesis 10, 70 people that went on to produce 70 nations. And consider even just the sons of Japheth, verse 2. Look at verse 2. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphtha. Look at all these names they have. Verse 5, look at this. If you're looking for baby names, this is the place to go, isn't it? (laughs) The sons of Javan, Elisha, uh, Tarshish, Kitman, Dodaman. Again, in verse 5, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. And 
While again, you, there's a lot of speculation about where some of these people ended up, we know largely that the descendants of Japheth, at least from what the, the research people have done, settled in the European area and in India, parts of the Middle East. And that these were the nations, you'll see in your notes, that were sort of the furthest from Israel, from Israel's perspective. These nations were pretty far away and didn't really interact a ton uh, with the people of God. One of these that, that I think was, we see a little bit related to Israel, is the name of the people uh, Medai, which in Hebrew was actually used to refer to a nation known as the Medes that you'll see throughout the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah and uh, the nation of the Medes is somewhere around modern-day Iran today. Uh, Josephus, who was a well-known Jewish historian, believed that the descendants of Gomer may have settled in Galatia, which is around the nation of Crimea and the Black Sea. And the reference to Magog likely is a reference to peoples who would eventually uh, become the nation of Russia down the road. That Javan, interestingly is the word translated into Greek to be a reference to the Greek people. But ultimately, I think verse 5 is what we need to focus in on. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each to his own language, by their clan, in their nations. These were people that filled much of Asia Minor, Europe, India, the lands along the coast there. And these were meant to show that these people were the furthest from Israel, both to the north and to the west. Next, it turns to the line of the sons of Ham. Look at verse 6. We see the sons of Ham. Verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. A few of these names should likely stand out to you and not for good things. If you're reading your Bible and you know where it's going, Egypt and Canaan are, are not going to be good names if you continue reading through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and beyond. Here we see nations close and opposed to Israel. Nations largely that were much closer, but also were generally opposed to the people of God. Again, Egypt and Canaan were primary sort of protagonists against God's people throughout much of the Bible. Uh, the nations of Put and Cush were south and west of Egypt, but this genealogy gets even more detailed. Look at this in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod, I would hate to have that name, right? And he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. And while this might sound like a good thing, I don't think Nimrod is meant to be a, a positive thing. If you continue reading in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. Before the Lord. And then in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Did you see that last part? Nimrod founded these kingdoms, and one of the kingdoms he found was a nation called Babel, which we read about this morning. Certainly not something for him to be proud of, right? That he founded this nation that ultimately rebelled against. God. But the text even goes on, verse 11. And from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Er, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum and Anamin, and all these different names you see here, right? And verse 14. Look at verse 14. 
I had all these this morning, I promise, before I walked in here, right? And, and we see that, that Kazluhim, we see from which the Philistines came. Drop down to verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerer, as far as Gaza, in the direction of where? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. So look at this. To give you the big picture here. Assyria, Nineveh, the Philistines, Sodom and Gomorrah, Canaan and Egypt. It doesn't take a, a seminary degree to see that there are some bad nations that came out of this guy in terms of their relationship to the kingdom of God. You have all of, these, all of these nations that would eventually come to be enemies and try to oppose God and his people. Ham, if you remember last week, was cursed, right? And we saw this generation that generations after him would ultimately become servants to God's people, and that's what happens. Many of these nations come and try to stand against God and his people, and they end up being conquered and God ultimately conquers in the end. We know Ham's line went south, likely, from where they were among the Mediterranean coast and parts of northern Africa. Here we see we get closer to the people of God. They're closer, but they're lines that are opposed to the nation of Israel. And finally, we get to the line of Shem. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, the children were born. Now, you should notice there's a break in the pattern. Anytime there's a break in a pattern in the Bible, something big's about to happen. See, he's about to tell you something really important. If you notice, the other times it simply said, the sons of Ham, the sons of Ham, and here they are, the sons of Japheth. But no, this, when it starts to introduce Shem, wants you to know that he was the father or the ancestor of a guy named Eber. And it was because the name Eber, it's from his name we get the term Hebrew. And Shem would eventually, through his line, give birth to a man named Abraham who had found a nation called Israel, right? It was through this, it was through the line of Shem that God would give birth to his nation. And you can see that there at the end of of chapter 11, uh, where you see the line go from Shem on into Abraham. The nation of Shem, you'll see, were the nation of Israel and sort of this surrounding, largely friendly nations with them. And beyond all of this, you kind of go, preacher, why are you telling me this? Why are you giving me a geography lesson on Sunday morning? The point Moses wants you to see is that humanity is united in a common ancestry. That no matter your background, your nation, your color, your culture, you have a common background. With everybody else, a common genealogy, we are in one sense one common family, the human family. In one sense, one race, the human race, the family of Noah, and ultimately the family of Adam. And in our days, this is so important to remember because as different as all of us may be, even in Katie's, we've got quite a lot of different folk around here. As different as we are, we share a unique bond. We share a brotherhood and a sisterhood that transcends all others. And this text directly confronts in our hearts or in our lives any sense of racism or prejudice or superiority we may have toward anyone else around us. Because, friends, you're cut from the same cloth. (laughs) You come from the same line. 
It would say to us that we should not consider ourselves greater or superior to others based on their color or their culture or their language or even who they voted for. And none of this might be, is meant to sort of take away our differences and our distinctions because those are there and those are important, they're real, but ultimately we come from the same line, the same root, the same family. And that leads us to ask ourselves, you'll see this question in your notes, do we view ourselves, do we view others around us, even those who are wildly different from us, as part of the human family with us? Does it change your view of the world to think that, hey, these people next to me, they're family in one sense. They're not that much different from me. This person that's frustrating me, whether it's in line or this person who who I just don't understand why they do this, maybe they're not all that much different from me. And here we see the origin of human unity and the fact that we have a common ancestry, but In Genesis 10 and 11, things turn really quick, and we also see the origin of human division. In fact, Genesis 10 and 11 displays how humanity was divided by sinful anarchy. So humanity united in a common ancestry, humanity divided by sinful anarchy. It's important we see this in chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 10, for example... You'll see in verse 5, it talks about the nations being spread. Verse 18, it says they were dispersed. Verse 32 closes this way. Look how the chapter closes. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. And we began to see that something happened in the midst of all of this that spread everybody out, that separated them, that divided them, that sent them out. Let's see. And we begin to see that something happened. Verse 25. To Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. That name means divided. And it tells us, for in his day the earth was divided. And his brother's name Here we see that at some point during this time of Peleg, the world began to divide. It began to split. Something happened. And back in the line of Cain, we get a hint of where something happened. That from the land of Shinar, people, verse 11, went into Assyria and built Nineveh and all these other nations. And what was in the land of Shinar? the Tower of Babel, a nation called Babel. And we're introduced to Babel in chapter 11. In the midst of this genealogy, the events of chapter 11 take place. And here's what happens. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This seems as like almost the opposite of division, right? People aren't just speaking the same language, but they're even using the same words for stuff, right? And then it says, and the people migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, in the Bible, the east is generally not associated with good things. Adam, exiled to the east. Often their enemies came from the east. So this should cue our ears. Something's about to happen, and it's probably not going to be good. The people began making a plan. Look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butchermen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us 
build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice this. The people were plotting together and in direct defiance and rebellion, they said they wanted to make a name for themselves and they did not want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Didn't God command them in chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 9 of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth? And they said, nah, we'd rather just hunker down, be here, and not do what God told us to do. They sought to do this. It also said for self-promoting reasons, not just to defy God, but also to show God just how great they were. This was all about them. And it was ultimately this act that led to many divisions we see in the world today. And before we look at what God did, let's look at the result. Verse 8, chapter 11, verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It was here that division began. Divisions over culture, race, class, language, and so many other things began to divide here, and it was the result of human sin. We see that for the longest time, people shared many things in common, but with the Tower of Babel, all of that changed. And I believe it was probably at the Tower of Babel where the political parties began. (laughs) It was probably there where you had the Babel, the Tower Party, and the non-Tower Party, right? That began to battle it out over these things. And we see human sin begin to take its toll on humanity's existence. Humankind's division came as a result of disobeying God. And before we're super hard on, on these folks in Babel, the motivation of Babel remains in our hearts today. You can see this in your notes, but we may not want to build a tower to heaven. But friends, do you ever believe that you know better than God does for your life? Do you ever walk around and think you know better? Because that was exactly what they did, right? Don't we often come to the Bible and go, well, I know God wrote this, but this is just good advice. And maybe there's other alternatives that God didn't consider. He doesn't know my situation, Right? As if my situation somehow exempts clear things he said, right? I mean, do we ever find ourselves coming to the Bible like these folks probably did and going, hey, just get with the times, God. Don't you know that towers to heaven are in? This is what all the people are talking about. I mean, how non inclusive that I can't build a tower all the way to heaven. Friends, God displays this account to say that even your best ideas, brought about in your wisdom alone, will never result in what you desire. This is telling you that you may not know what's best for your life. And that should be the most freeing thing in the world, because if you're the master of your own destiny, that's a whole lot of responsibility. And let me tell you, you can't handle this. (laughs) You can't handle this. These people were divided by their sinful anarchy. They wanted to live life their way apart from God And we see where that ended up. And finally, we see humanity humbled by divine activity. Humanity united in a common ancestry. Humanity divided by sinful anarchy. And humanity humbled by divine activity. Notice what happens here. Verse 5 of chapter 11. Look at this. 
So they build this city, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. First, I love this because the Bible gets to be a little sarcastic. (laughs) Gets a little bit of humor here that these folks are trying to build this huge tower and it says God had to come down to see their puny little tower. Now, we know God is everywhere. This is a figure of speech, but it's telling you God wasn't impressed. This was not impressive to them that even all the nations of the world with their towers and their efforts are but a drop in the bucket. They are dust. They built, even with all they have, a tiny Lego compared to the God of the universe. And all the nations of the world, the Bible says, are but tiny Legos compared to our great God And how does God respond? He sees that nothing could be impossible for them. This isn't God somehow being afraid of what people could do or whatever. He's simply saying that if they could pursue after some sort of foolish thing, like building a tower to heaven, what other crazy foolish thing could they do? If they really think that this is a good idea, if you gave them all of these things, what else Will they do? And I think social media is a perfect example of what happens when you can give people free access to do whatever they want and post it. You can, you can see all sorts of wild things, right? Consider this foolishness. And God says, look at all the foolishness they could pursue together. And so God confuses their language, their languages, and caused them to babble. And the people were humbled. God stepped in, and he squashed their plans, and God displayed his sovereignty and showed who was truly in charge. Psalm chapter 2, which isn't about Babel, but is sort of about nations of the world that desire to rebel against God. Look what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast them away, and cast away their cords from us. And look at God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. The Lord laughs. To hold someone in derision is to mock them. God looks down on the attempts of the world to burst their bonds and to live in autonomy without him, and he laughs at it. He isn't taken aback. Friends, he isn't surprised by things in this world that might take us by surprise. He isn't left wondering what he will do. God remains sovereign even as the world rages and people make plans. And it says, God came down and judged these people's attempts. And God did a very similar thing in in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can flip over there or see it on the screen in Genesis chapter 18. In verse 21, we see this in response to all of the wickedness that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see, then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. When God's got to come down, you know things are bad. 
When it says God came down, this is an act of, of, of judgment. This is something to fear. Parents, you understand this. If you hear a sudden crash in the middle of the night and you've got to get out of your bed and go down the hall or down the stairs and your child who got into that thing that you told them not to do, if dad's got to get out of bed, y'all understand. <laughs> Things are about to get rough, aren't they? And friends, if God's got to come down... Friends, this is an act of full humiliation on Babel's pride, on their ingenuity, on their self-perception. And it tells us that there are certain things that we simply cannot accomplish in our power or by our own strength. Let me tell you, there are things that humankind, no matter what sort of effort or push or intelligence or, or come-togetherness or power, there are things we simply are not going to be able to do, and problems we simply won't be able to solve. And I know that's a hard pill for some of us to swallow, but I think the Bible is clear about this in a number of areas. I see this all the time, this idea that if we all just come together, we can somehow bring peace on the earth and solve all the problems, and kumbaya, let's just come together and do it. And friends, they tried that. They tried that, and and they probably, I'm sure the folks at Babel didn't come with a huge sort of, with their big campaign to build this tower. They probably didn't come and go, hey, let's disobey God and cause ourselves to be scattered and judged by him. No, they probably came real cunning, going, hey, let's do this. Let's bring peace on earth. Let's build this together. Let's do all these good things. They brought it under one sort um, sort of goal, but underneath it, there were sinful, selfish motives. And sadly, friends, peace doesn't come even through peace treaties or mutual submission to a common group or cause. Rather, peace can only come through the reign and rule of the prince of peace. Sure, mutual respect can go a long way in helping the world we're in today. And I think we should pursue mutual respect as much as possible, but it cannot curb the sinful human heart. And that's the third reflection question you see in your notes. Do we believe that we can solve all the world's problems on our own? Do we believe that we can solve all the world's problems on our own? And I know it's hard to hear, but the quicker we embrace that we can't, friends, the quicker that we'll avoid being humbled by the one who can truly do these things, God himself. Genesis 10 and 11 In these chapters, we see a table of nations, and we see a tower that that they sought to build to the heavens. And in this, we see humanity united in a common ancestry, divided due to sinful anarchy, and and, and, and their humility due to divine activity. But you want to kind of end the, you look at the end of this, and you're like, there's no good news here. Where's the good news? And the good news is that you got the rest of the book. The good news is that you have more coming after this. God just didn't stop the story there. Babel was just the beginning. And in fact, God had already set a day in place. There was a day coming for Babel's reversal. For Babel's reversal. God so desires to fill the earth with his glory and his image bearers and people who know him and love him. He, he so desires that that he was willing to spread these people out 
from Babel and spread them all over the earth. And God would bring all of this full circle when he would begin to reverse the curse of Babel on a day commonly known as Pentecost. On a day in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit would come down and would turn languages that once divided people into a blessing that united people. Look, turn over if you want, or you can look on the screen with me to Acts chapter 2 in your New Testament. So if you're new to the Bible or the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And look at Acts chapter 2 with me here. And we begin to see some incredible things here. Acts chapter 2. And here we see chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, those being the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And look at verse 7. You'll see some, some interesting things here. Look at this. Are not, are they, and they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergama, Philaia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongue the mighty works of God. Here we see God come down and bring unity to the diversity of nations by sending his gospel out into the world, that the languages that were once a curse, he now has made a blessing, and he begins an incredible mission that God calls, that God is going to finish. He begins showing that, hey, this gospel, this good news, is not just for the Jew or just for the Gentile, it is for all people Everywhere, And he was going to use these languages to accomplish this. See, God is out to have a people, believers, a body of saints and witnesses from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation on the earth. And in fact, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, gives us a glimpse into a completed mission. Not simply at Babel's reversal, but at Babel's removal. But it babbles removal. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. We see this incredible vision that John gets. And look what he says. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude beyond number. That's a lot of folks if you can't number them. 
from every tribe, people, language, and nation. And notice, their differences aren't gone. He can tell that there's people of different tribes, tongues, languages, and nations here in this vision, but they're united now under one banner of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came from heaven to dwell with us, God in flesh, born of a woman, born just as you and I are with human flesh, and he came to walk this earth in humble obedience, to die on the cross, to be buried, and to rise again from the dead, that any and all who would come to him through repentance and faith could find life everlasting and being grafted into God's family. The call is that anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord, regardless of your background, who you are, are, what you've done, where you've been, you can find hope and forgiveness of sin in the gospel of Jesus. That's the good news that's here, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus invites any and all to come to him and to find rest for their souls. And friends, as a church, that should tell us that the harvest is plentiful, just like Jesus said it was. It's the workers that are so often Few. God has bought nations with the blood of Jesus. And friends, he's brought the nations even to us here in Katie's. You have no idea how many folks. I just walked around town one day and I started asking folks stories. And he's brought some folks here in some crazy ways. Even folks in this church. He's brought you all here from all over the world and all over the country in such incredible ways. And consider, friends, no one in the Bible spoke English or looked or acted anything like you. And yet, without believers in those days and before you embracing the mission of God, you would not be standing here today. Friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, others you may encounter, and others who may God send to you, they are a part of this incredible multitude that we saw in this vision. And that's why we must go to them with the gospel, with the hope of Jesus. And this is why Jesus, before he ascended, he gave his church a mission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, the Great Commission says this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And God is the one who, friends, has placed you where you are, with the gifts you have, even with the language or languages that you speak in order to further this mission. This is why our church gives toward missions throughout the globe. This is why we send out missionaries and why we pray for the world, because God's purpose is that all of Christ would be proclaimed in all of Cades and beyond into all the world. That disciples would be made, they'd be baptized, and that they would be taught everything that Jesus commanded. And friends, the last question to consider here on, on, this, on, this, on your notes is, do you see yourself as a part of God's great mission to the world? Do you see that you have a particular role to play in this? Let me plead with you to use your life, however great or small, with whatever you have, whether great or small, for the glory of God among all the nations of the world, beginning right where you are. For the ends of the earth 
to know and to hear. And let me close with some words that I think have utterly transformed the lives of generations of believers. There's a a pretty well-known pastor named, uh, named John Piper who sort of ignited a movement among young people. And way back before anybody knew who John Piper was, he spoke at an event in Memphis at a Passion College conference in 2000. So I would have been six years old. And what's wild is my pastor in Owensboro was called to ministry at this event, like was really impacted by this event. He was there in Memphis hearing John Piper speak these words that I think have radically moved a generation and I hope will continue to move generations of folks toward living for the glory of God. Here's a rough manuscript of what he said. He said this that day. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or even a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. And then he continues, But I know that not everyone in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. If you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. And he says, that is a tragedy in the making. And he continues on speaking of his church here, saying three weeks ago we got words of, of our church and from our, at our church that Rudy Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. These are missionaries that Piper and them had supported in 2000. Uh, Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way, over the cliff they go, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I ask my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent an unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on the trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is glory. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from the Reader's Digest. Just to note, young people, ask your parents what Reader's Digest is. He holds it up. 
And he begins to read, and he says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. Now, he was, 90, he was 59, and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida. That in Spanish translates to fat point in Florida. And now they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. Piper says, that's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And he says, I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. And friends, as your pastor, I get however long I am your pastor to plead with you to not buy it. With all your heart, I plead with you, he continues, don't buy that dream, that American dream of a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells is the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe and give an account for what you did, and you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. And then he concludes, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. And I think the call of Genesis 10 and 11 to all of us is don't waste your life. God has a global mission for you to be a part of that begins here in Katy's, right in the neighborhood that you're a part of. And beyond, into the world, God's going to send some of you off to college where you're going to meet students from nations where they don't even have access to the gospel. Friends, they picked up folks from, from the from there's parts of Africa where you can be killed for being a Christian, and they dropped them as refugees in Owensboro, Kentucky, and brought them right to the pastor <laughs> to talk to them. While I was there, I'm like, it's, only, it's like God's got this whole thing figured out or something, right? It's almost like he's in control of the movements of the world. And God would call all of us to lay a blank check on the table and to ask him, what would you have me do with my life? What can I do here, give toward here, devote myself to here that would make his name great among all the world because none of us want to stand before him on the last day with shells. (laughs) Friends, we want to stand before him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The call of this morning is exactly the same. Don't waste your life. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can encounter this Jesus who will not only save you from your sin, but set you on a trajectory from your, of your life that will change it forever and have you be a part of the purpose that he's doing in the world. And you can come to know him through repentance and faith. If you want to talk more, I'm here, others are here. But for us as believers, I think we need to ask ourselves, where is our devotion, our passion, our longing, our life going forward? And what can we do by God's grace for God's glory to make an impact for him in the future? May we not waste our lives. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are good. We have heard a a heavy word from you this morning. And I pray that we hear it for what it is, your word being preached, not not Matt's opinion, not what Matt would like to say, but rather what you would speak to these people right now. And I trust that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing soul and marrow, that it would, by your spirit, pierce your people, fill your people, overflow out of us.
not only in song today, but in the way we live, overflow into making the gospel known in our community and beyond, overflow in the way we love and, and, and think about our families and our lives going forward. And God, we ask that you would use our lives as, as what they are, simple offerings for you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.